All right, let's open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 26 through 31. These are familiar verses, I'm sure. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, or your translation might say according to the flesh. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing or to nullify things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. So, what we're going to do today is we're going to take apart a few of these phrases and just glean some truths. Um, I don't expect any of this to be new uh, to you. These are just fundamental truths in Christianity. And if I could try to kind of boil it down and give the main point at the beginning, we'll have some different application along the way. But the main point or the main points would be that this section is showing us the true treasure, that which is truly valuable in life, is salvation and a relationship with God. And he gives it to the lowly and empty ones, and then they learn to praise him and trust him. So there's a lot going on in this little section, but that's kind of the main focus. That's where we're headed. So we're going to consider... Um, five or six different phrases. The first one shows up in verse 26. It says, for consider your calling. Consider your calling. So what does this mean? This is kind of a cool phrase. Um, it doesn't mean calling in life like you're calling your vocation or what God has called you to do as in a job, but it's actually referring to your testimony or the time in which you were born again. So we don't use this phrase a lot. We'll say things like, I became a Christian, or that's when I was saved. But one way the Bible um, refers to salvation in terms of the initial moment of salvation is your calling. So-and-so was called. That means they were born again. And it's kind of a cool way to refer to salvation. Um, it's as if God is in heaven, and though you can't hear his voice audibly, that's very rare, uh, yet every time someone gets saved, he's calling their name spiritually, and that's why they're coming to him. 
And so it's all over the scriptures. We won't turn and hunt around. But what he's saying is, think back to when you first became a Christian. And he's going to use, he's going to appeal to your experience. And it's true for those in Corinth, but it's true for us today. He's going to appeal to the time in your life when you first became a Christian to, to teach you or remind you of something. So you can keep that in the back of your mind. Where was I when the Lord saved me? How many years ago was that? What was going on in my life? That's the first point. Um, the second phrase we're going to look at is right after that. He says, not many of you were these things, wise in the fleshly way of wisdom, powerful or mighty, or of noble birth. Not many of you were that. If you think back to your beginning as a Christian, chances are good that wasn't your station in life. You didn't have worldly wisdom. Um, you probably didn't have a PhD. You probably weren't born into a royal family. You probably weren't high up as some politician. Um, you probably weren't wealthy, and you probably weren't like this famous, muscular, good-looking person. <laughs> and he's saying that to the Corinthians, but what we're going to see is this is really true throughout history, throughout the church, and even for us today. Um, and so I don't say that to pick on us because we're from Kirksville, although it's true, like being in Kirksville, probably no one super rich or famous. Uh, even lives in Kirksville. But just to highlight uh, what God has been doing throughout the ages, usually God picks those that the world deem as foolish or unimportant, weak, overlooked, despised, people that you wouldn't start out your life and say, you know, that's where I want to be when I grow up. Um, but usually that's who God chooses. And we can think about this throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, I was just thinking of some examples. Um, Abraham was chosen by God, but he didn't have any children. He was an idol worshiper, and God told him to leave his land, basically leaving his inheritance behind. Um, God had a different purpose for his life. Jacob the one that God chose was the younger brother and the less favored. Moses, if you think about his beginning, he was a child of Hebrew slaves, and he was so despised that he had to be hidden in a basket uh, just to be kept alive as a baby. Rahab was a prostitute. Samuel was just a little helper, a little servant boy. God called him. David was the youngest of his seven brothers, and he was a shepherd boy. He wasn't even around when they were looking for a king. They had to call him in from the field. Uh, Mephibosheth, he was this crippled son of Saul, who was essentially, you know, the enemy of David, constantly trying to kill him. So God is always surprising us by choosing unlikely people to show grace to and to have mercy on. And it's true in the New Testament, too. Jesus himself sets the example by being born as um, a carpenter to a poor family. The disciples were fishermen, uneducated. 
some of them tax collectors, lowly women. And you see, when Jesus is ministering, he gives special attention to children and uh, doesn't seem to give very much attention to Pharisees or kings or anyone. That was not his, that was not where his eye was set. And then, of course, now we come to this verse, which is a reference to the New Testament church. So here on record, verse 26, Paul says, not many of you were wise, not many of you were mighty. And if anybody was qualified to tell us what, as a whole, the New Testament church looked like, it would surely be the Apostle Paul. I mean, he traveled around and went to so many different churches, started most of them, and uh, it's in scripture, so it's inspired. So we don't have to wonder about what church history was like back then. One thing we can know is the church was full of common, ordinary, not special people. No one that the world would look at and say, you know, wow, they're really something great. Um, many of them were slaves or just working class people. And so it goes down through church history um, and even to our day today. So what about you? Uh, what was your station in life when God saved you? Well, like I said, you probably weren't anyone wealthy or famous or super educated or super respected. Um, there, of course, are exceptions because he says not many of you. He doesn't say none of you. Um, but when God makes exceptions to this pattern, uh, and he chooses someone that the world thinks is really awesome, and he saves them, he always has a way of breaking them down, uh, at least so that internally they know they're nothing and they're not walking in pride. Um, so this is, this is just declaring the general facts. Paul is just making a declaration saying, this in general is the way God works and is true of you as well. There's an application here, I think, for us as Christians before we move to the next phrase, and that is um, we can remember today that God is merciful and regards us even in our low position. And we can, we can give thanks to God just that he is the way he is, that he's not looking out on who's impressive and who's powerful. God is looking in the heart and he's specifically looking on people that aren't impressive and aren't powerful, um, that the world overlooks. He sees things totally differently. And so we can just rejoice in that today. That's one of our applications. The next phrase, verse 27. God chose... That's the phrase, God chose, or God has chosen. This is to say that God didn't, God doesn't, this isn't like an accident. This isn't just by chance, like, oh, what do you know? There's not many mightier, powerful people. No, it's to say God purposefully chooses and wants to save the lowly. He has a reason behind it. God passes over strong and powerful people, attractive people, and he looks for the nobodies. It's kind of like drawing from the bottom of the deck. Or if you're a builder, like going to the, 
discard pile or the, the scrap bucket to find your building materials to build something. It's very counterintuitive. You know, this is not the way companies work as far as looking for talent, looking for people to hire. But this is the way God works. It's a deliberate choice. And this is an illustration I've used before, probably because it was so uh, near to me in my early childhood. But, you know, kids will divide up on sports teams, and you'll have a captain on one team and captain on the other team, like a neighborhood game. And they pick people. And they always pick, you know, the ones that are the fastest or the ones that are the strongest or the ones that understand the rules of the game. <laughs> but it's as if God is picking the people that nobody would pick, and he's picking them first. It's really amazing. Praise the Lord. Yeah, praise the Lord. So there's, there's an application here for the unbeliever, and that is, have you ever lamented the fact or been felt sorry for yourself that you didn't have as great of a life as you see someone having on TV or you see someone, somebody really cool in your school or your college or some, I don't know, person who has super successful uh, in their workplace or family life or career or whatever. Have you ever thought, Oh, man, why wasn't I born into that station? Or why, why did I miss out on these opportunities? Well, perhaps God left you in a small place so that you would actually see your need for him. Because those things that the world regards as great have a way of blinding us to what's really important in life. So it may be that God is having mercy on you by leaving you in this place where yeah, I don't have anything great to show. Um, we don't want to be blind to our spiritual needs. And the truth is that everyone has sinned and needs forgiveness, uh, needs a right relationship with God. That's way more important than all the other things the world exalts, is to be right with God. Let's look at the next phrase. This is in verse 27. In 28 as well, uh, two words, to shame. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing or to nullify the things that are. So what is he saying here? To shame. God's doing this on purpose. He's choosing the lowly. And he's doing it for a reason. What is the reason? This kind of gets at the, the question of why. Why is he doing this? Why is he drawing from the bottom of the deck? Why is he picking the people that have nothing to offer? He's doing it to shame the others. Well, that's kind of strange, isn't it? And what does shame mean? Uh, to shame, as a verb, just means to make someone feel ashamed, right? Um, so if you were going to try to shame someone into a bargain, you're trying to make them feel bad for the price they're offering. It just means there's something going on in the life of unbelievers that the Lord is trying to show them, trying to convince them, trying to make them see that their ways are wrong and shameful. Um, that they have 
twisted around and turned upside down the things that really matter. It's like he's going to prove it to them. He's out to prove something to the proud. And really, I mean, we all have pride in our hearts. It's, it's not as though people in lowly places have no pride. But God is specifically out to show the truth. And so he's working by choosing the lowly to set things back in the right perspective and show how shameful it is to pursue things like money or possessions or station in life or uh, power, fame, all of those things. In the end, what the world has and what the world is chasing after is just like an illusion. And it it fails. If you don't have a relationship with God and you're not standing in a right position with God, in the end, it will just wither away. Um, when does this happen? Have you ever, has, so we've kind of agreed, God has called you. You were in a low position. God saved you. Have you ever put anyone to shame because of your testimony? Well, actually, it happens a lot. Um, it can happen through people's conscience being bothered by being around you as a Christian. And the scriptures talk about that. Don't, you know, return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. And so as you do good deeds to others, if someone's hungry, you feed them. If they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. The scriptures say you heap burning coals on their head and they feel ashamed uh, when, when they've done bad things to you and you do good things to them, many times, not always, but many times in their heart, they feel ashamed. Even if they don't admit it or don't want to show it, they know they should be acting like you're acting. They should have the priorities that you have and they don't. So this can happen. People can feel the, the right kind of shame um, in their conscience. That's one way. But the next way is in conversion. This is the best way. This is when someone gets around a Christian or a whole church or several Christians and they feel so ashamed, not in the, you know, the, the way that just leads to despair, but in the, in the proper sense that the spirit is working in them, they feel so ashamed that they call upon the Lord and they're converted and they themselves are called. They now have have let go of those things they wanted and were chasing after the illusions and have come to God. And then finally, um, on Judgment Day, on the last day, it will be true that when God shows the people that have inherited salvation as calling them into his kingdom, it will put to shame all of the kings and the pharaohs and the generals and all of the you know, PhD scholars and authors and things, people that were so against God, then, especially then, will be put to shame. Because then it will, everything will be totally cleared up, totally revealed, and you'll see all these nobodies marching into heaven, you know, going into Zion, and you'll see all the great people of the world who did not repent and did not trust Christ being cast out, and they'll feel ashamed. So that's part of what God is doing in this. And so um, one thing we can remember here, as a believer, if it seems like no one is 
being put to shame by your testimony in the, in the good sense, then keep praying. Keep watching. Keep waiting. Because it will happen in this life and on the last day. God said it would here in these verses. If this is what God is doing and he's doing it on purpose, we know it won't fail. It, it will prove true that God will save the lowly to shame um, those that are exalted. All right, um, we've got two more phrases to look at. Um, in verse 29 and verse 31. <coughs> two words, so that, and then in verse 31, so that. So these so that's are really important. So we've seen what God is doing We've seen why he's doing it. And then here, additionally, there's yet another reason. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this now brings up boasting. And it brings it up in two ways. One, not boasting in yourself not boasting in the typical things people boast about, and then so that people boast in the Lord. So what does boast mean? What does it mean to boast? Well, um, me and Sierra say this a lot to our kids. We'll tell them, don't boast. Guys, don't boast. Because what happens is when... A child does something good and they pull something off or they get their way or whatever. Very common from a young age is to boast, to brag. Hey, I did it. I was better. I was faster. I, I got the thing or whatever. But this is something that really comes up all throughout life because, again, it goes back to pride. It's expressing your pride in something. You're really proud of something. Um, and really, I think in the scriptures, especially when you put it in the context of spiritual matters, boasting or being proud, it can kind of come up kind of from two angles. One can be praising something, which that's a way of boasting is to praise this, how great it is, but also kind of oftentimes get gets tied in with trust. If you're boasting in something, you're trusting in it because it can be past tense or it can be future. And so what he's saying is God chooses the lowly and saves them and he makes them his children, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He doesn't want us to be proud of ourselves. He doesn't want us to trust in ourselves. He doesn't want us to rejoice in money or trust in money or education or health care or whatever. Um, in the Bible, pride is like one of these root sins. You know, it's kind of like hidden underneath every other sin. Somewhere in there is pride. It, it's kind of like this foundational type of sin or a clinging type of sin, very hard to get rid of. Um, but also, I think, 
pride is an ugly sin because it's so out of touch with reality. As Christians, we know we don't have anything apart from Christ. Um, we need the grace of God for everything. What do you have that you haven't received? We know we're hopeless without God. Only Christ can save us and restore us. And so we have nothing to boast in. That's what makes pride so ugly, is that it's so out of touch with reality. When you stand a human who's just dust next to the infinite almighty creator, and the human, the the little dust created being, is boasting or trusting or praising themselves, it's so out of touch with reality. And so an application here for us as believers is that we, we need to use the gospel of free grace as a safeguard uh, to remind us not to think highly of ourselves or not to even think highly of others, other Christians but to live a life where we boast in the Lord and we are constantly giving him all the credit for all the good things that he's done for us or that he will do for us, the Lord should be the object of our focus and our praise. We never want to get switched around to where we become high-minded. And so we don't have time to really dig into this, but this was actually a big problem in Corinth. And I think this is why Paul's bringing it up is because they had got switched around They were putting a lot of stock in these um, preachers there. And Paul realized, you guys are really boasting in men. And it's not right, you know, boast in Christ in the gospel. Uh, I like the song. There's a song that says, No more, my God, I boast no more of all the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I had before to trust the merits of thy son. So for a Christian, when the Lord calls you and saves you, he, he silences your boasting. And he, he shows you he's your only hope. He's your all in all. That brings us to verse 31. Um, it, I guess it would be worth reading verse 30 here so we don't skip over it. Because of him, let's just read it again. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So there's four great things that Christ gives to us and is for us. Uh, And we don't have time to unpack them. But wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Everything in the Christian life. Justification, sanctification, glorification, any good blessing, any good spiritual thing that God gives to you, It's not because of you. It's not from you. It's from him. It's all given in Christ and through Christ. And then verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is our last phrase and our last point. Um, As it is written, where? Where is it written? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This seems to be a reference to Jeremiah 9, 23, if you want to flip there. So Paul appealed to the fact that, 
hey, you guys, think about your own testimonies. You were saved kind of as no one special. But now he's appealing to Scripture. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So what should you boast in? Jeremiah says, not those other things. Boast that you understand and know me, that I'm this great God who shows love and righteousness and faithfulness. And so back in 1 Corinthians, he's saying, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. To be a Christian means you trust in Jesus Christ to be your wisdom, not the world's wisdom. The world's wisdom really is not that great. Very little things can they teach you. But you trust in the wisdom from Christ. You trust in his righteousness. You trust in his sanctification and redemption. And we're giving him all the credit for all these things, our salvation. Um, that's why we sing songs like, he is our all in all. Because from start to finish, all the spiritual blessings come from him. Every good gift. For the unbeliever, this means there's a lot of things that you could trust in or be proud of or boast in or pursue. But in the end, they all fail. They all wither. But when you start to see your real need for forgiveness and a right relationship with God, then the beauty and worth of God sending his son becomes clear. Um, he is worthy and you learn to boast in Christ alone. Without him, without being right with God, everything else is just hollow. For the Christian, this is our final application, is we don't have, as we look at these verses and we're reminded to boast in the Lord, it's good because we don't have to feel the pressure to be anything in the world's eyes. A lot of times we feel that, though, don't we? But we don't have to respond and give way to that kind of pressure. We can just boast in the Lord day after day until we reach glory. We give thanks to him for the spiritual blessing he gives us in his invisible kingdom. And even if the world can't see it, we know we've got what we really need. We've got what they need. We've got what really matters. Even if we never get any of the other things, none of the other things really matter. It's good to come back to the gospel to remember that we're just dust and that God gets all the praise and all the credit for our salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would help us to boast in you 
to be proud of you, Lord, even in spite of all of the uh, the fleshly ways around us of the world or even false Christianity, Lord, help us not to look to any of those things. Help us to rejoice in you. Help us to um, give thanks to you. Lord, we are in your hands. We are your workmanship. You have called us. You have put us on the narrow path, and I pray that you would uh, be glorified and, and keep us, Lord, boasting in you all, all of our days. Help us, Lord, renew our minds not to um, be disturbed by or get off track with um, the worldly ways of thinking. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who's lost and listening to these words, Lord, that you would begin calling them and showing them, Lord, that opening their eyes, that they need to be right with you, that they need forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.